0: Hey everyone, so a couple warnings actually this week. First warning is that we at the Wrong Boys headquarters have been deep in production mode on the follow-up to the Social Ecology episode. And at the same time, I've had this interview that we did back in July. It forms the basis of this episode that is so good, and I just wanted to get it out. So all the sketches in this episode are rerun sketches. If you've heard all the episodes of this show, then you've heard all these sketches. And the second warning, the more kind of serious warning is that, as the title implies, this episode is about political self-immolation, but also touches on and mentions some stuff surrounding suicide and mental illness and other things that it's always good to give people a heads up about. Martin.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. My name is Sean.
0: And I'm Aaron. And this week we're talking to Brent Cooper, who is someone whose writing I've been following for a while. He writes these really dense, interesting articles about all kinds of topics under the name of the Tract Organization, which is a meta-modern think tank. But he also works in other mediums, too. I've seen him put out lots of videos and music and just all kinds of stuff. But when I read his article on this self-immolation that we're going to discuss, I just knew we had to have him on. So we're going to get into the self-immolation right away, and later in the episode we also get into other aspects of his work, what metamodernism means, and all kinds of interesting stuff. But first, just a little bit of necessary but unfortunate business.
1: Oh, look who it is. My favorite dental patient. <laughs> Stop. I'm your favorite. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's it's not really right to pick a favorite. I have so many patients.
0: Oh, I'm sure you have a favorite. It's just not me. I get so nervous. I hate oh, no, sitting here no, the whole no. time. It's okay
1: to be nervous. A lot of people are nervous at the dentist.
0: It's something I sit through because it's
1: important. These short visits keep your teeth going without them... Your face wouldn't make any sense.
0: But what comes next is something I don't enjoy. I got my hands in your mouth. How do you feel
1: about that? Yeah, yeah, me too. I love the dentist. Let me just um, get my little drill. Don't worry, that's normal. So, how's life? Really? Oh, well, she should apologize. Really? You found a new podcast. It mixes comedy and politics? Oh my god, you're saying that podcast was so good that you logged on to patreon.com and started giving the creators of the show $6 a month? Wow, all those incredible bonus features and content just for $6? And you support the show and make it happen? That's incredible.
2: Oh, sorry, sorry, I was really getting in
1: there. Just like if you don't know on Patreon, you get into a secret Facebook group. Good point. It is wonderful to support independent leftist content. Hmm. Okay, now I'm going to do another standard part of the dental experience, and I'm going to slap you in the face repeatedly. Are you ready? (coughs) Sorry, sorry. That's just part of basic
0: dental work. You're wild, man. You're wild. It was painful, but necessary. Painful, but necessary.
1: Okay, so I'm just going to lean you back in the chair now, and I'm going to leave the room for 40 minutes.
0: Can I go too? Are we Uh, done?
1: No, no, we're not done.
0: Okay. Back to the show. Thank you, Brent, for coming on the show. Thank you. So you published an article about a self-immolation that happened last year, 2019, where a man, Arnav Gupta, set himself on fire on the White House lawn wearing a USA t-shirt. And when you sent me this article, I was like... How did this happen? And I didn't know it happened. I didn't know anything about it. And like nobody talked about it. That was like one of the weirdest things about it.
3: I definitely saw it that morning. You know, I woke up to it, and we're already living in a time where every day the news is crazy. And, you know, Trump is the president. And that was surreal for a while. And then it becomes normal. But fact is stranger than fiction. You can't. Make this stuff up. The imagery was graphic. It made an immediate impact on me. The USA t shirt, the location, the White House lawn was just so dramatic. All of the characteristics of it his ethnicity, his background, his education. And there was some minimalist reporting, right? The next day, the New York Times and the Washington Post had like very brief articles, superficially touching on the details like this happened. But usually other outlets pick it up. Other pundits talk about it or write an article, and I just couldn't find anybody else talking about it. But because I was already aware somewhat of self-immolation and its political significance and the cases in history and what its intended effects are, I was very impacted by it. It immediately spoke to me as reflective of the deeper systemic crises in the world that are unfolding that also don't get enough attention. So this was a shock value theatrical event, but it was so complex perhaps that nobody knew what to make of it. They didn't want to touch it. He left no suicide note, but the event itself speaks volumes. And because we live in a digital age, it was all captured, right? So you have video, you have close-up photography of the entire event. And so I think that's what added to the gravity of it, the salience of it. That there were actual witnesses to it and people are like, what the fuck is going on?
1: The reaction of the onlooker and the way that they're sort of processing it in real time, they're a little uncouth in a way. I remember they're crude somehow.
3: I think the guy who was filming was just totally shocked. And I think maybe his buddy was like, Is this a movie or something? And then he's like, No, this is like this is real. Dude, what the fuck? That's not a stunt. Where are the police? Dude, that's not a fucking stunt. This guy's killing he's burned himself alive. The fuck?
1: It's the police. No, he doesn't.
2: Stop. Like, like, fucking get your head out of your ass. He's on fuck.
3: And the video itself is like. From a distance, you just see this kind of silhouette engulfed in a bright pink flame. Like, there's not even a lot of smoke. So, it's like, you're thinking, is this, like, uh, special effects or or something? Like, what am I seeing? Yeah,
0: it's hard to believe it's real.
1: And you saw this, like, when you first woke up on the day that it had. Like, you went on Twitter and, like, you saw this video right away?
3: So, I didn't get around to finishing this article till a year after. And it sort of became, like, an anniversary kind of thing to publish it on the same day. But... Pretty much. Yeah, because we're on the West Coast and this happened on the East Coast. And I'm pretty sure this happened just before noon. So for our time, it would have been just before nine o'clock. And so, yeah, I was literally woke up to it in my Twitter feed. And like I said, you know, the news is crazy every day. But this in particular stood out to me. It was like almost paranormal. Yeah. And then throughout the day, nobody was talking about it. I didn't see much else being posted. As far as things going viral on Twitter, you know, dumb things can get hundreds of thousands of views. And according to the tweet here in my article, it has 1.4 thousand likes. So it's not nothing, but it's also like pretty small scale in the grand scheme of things.
1: We have a few tweets on that caliber. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that definitely shouldn't have been as big news as this event or tweet. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. So you mentioned there was no suicide note. He didn't leave anything specifically saying, I did this for this reason but there is stuff available to know who he was and like maybe why he did this. Like We do have some information on that. So yeah, if you could talk a bit about writing the article and some of the stuff in there.
3: Yeah, so I didn't know all the details at first, even though a lot of this information was available within a month or within a few days. But by the time I got around to writing the article and aggregating it, I'd saw there was all these different points, like a kind of constellation, but the dots weren't connected, right? Nobody had connected the dots. Like, you could write a book about this, but I couldn't interview him, obviously. I couldn't interview the family, so I was careful not to speculate too much. But I'd say the first kind of just facts about the person that jumped out at me is how similar it was to me. Like, he studied international relations. We're roughly similar age, you know. He was an educator, did social justice and anti-racist work in particular, and he was an artist and a poet. So yeah, the different pieces, like, so I found out through a Reddit post, there was a link to his personal website and you could see his art. And then I saw the 15 page poem he wrote and I investigated close Reddit and tried to extrapolate again, without trying to speculate too much, just trying to relate to this consciousness, right? Because I think there's a desperation that is very ubiquitous, kind of systemic. Like we live in a post 9-11 age, kind of war on terror and the financial crises and Occupy Wall Street and the Arab Spring. And so people who study these things, like he did in international relations, you see how it's all connected and you care. And I guess you also feel that your efforts are futile. There's not much you can do about it, but you do what you can, right? And so every day is a struggle. So this event is just a symptom of that everyday struggle, right? And so the act of self-immolation is definitely a conscious choice to make a public sacrifice and a political statement that you hope reverberates beyond your life. And like in the case of this event, it was ignored, but other events can get blown up out of proportion. Like everybody knows who George Floyd is now, but he's just one of thousands upon thousands of other people who have been profiled or unjustly treated or murdered in his case by police or just in general, just a kind of victim of systemic violence and oppression. Right. And in the case of activists, like you're constantly giving and putting yourself out there To advocate for causes that may be far removed from your personal life, but you become so emotionally invested that, you know, you have no choice. So I'm engaged in this kind of stuff every day. So when I see somebody like Arnav Gupta there doing something so dramatic, making a public sacrifice, it spoke to the everyday struggle of activists and writers and artists and people who are oppressed. And of course, like the symbolism of it being on the White House lawn in a Trump presidency. And of course, Trump does not care about that event. And even if he did, there's no incentive to address it. It's not strategic. It's like, what, you know, what do you even say? But I tragically just saw it as such a wasted opportunity because if only we lived in a world and a country, in the case of the US, where they cared enough that you can like put things on pause and have that national conversation. And, you know, things like the pandemic and the protests, which are happening now, kind of force that. But again, it's just a symptom of these things that are always bubbling under the surface.
1: And Arnov didn't leave any sort of political note or manifesto related to his beliefs. We know that he was a member of the Green Party, which means he's probably interested in, like, social justice, ecology, democracy... Peace and international relations and stuff. We know that would be his like area of political thought that he believes in. It's also really apparent in the poem that he self published. But his sort of suicide note was a tweet on all caps Feel the Burn. Right. Spelled B U R N, just for clarity. Right, right. Because this is happening at the time of the US primaries where Feel the Burn is a political and I mean Based on his poetry, I think he's pretty into the political puns. So I think he's aware of that he's making a reference in a way. Yeah. Uh, But there's that. And then he also published on his website, Arnamania, a 101 guide to oil painting that was published on the same day. Like, If you want to learn to paint with oils, here's where to start. Take it from an oil painter. Right. And this is a guy who's burning alive at the time. yeah this seems really incoherent it does and when I say it's incoherent I'm not criticizing him I'm fascinated by it I'm like but I can't square the circle like what
3: well I gotta say like I thought exactly the same thing as what you just said I do not know what to make of it there's some inconsistencies in the story such as those it's just kind of inexplicable and it's a little too far to speculate but especially with the tweet like I had the same impression like he could have tweeted anything you know and (laughs) Why tweet that? And I saw speculation. Maybe he was on some sort of drugs that would either motivate him or enable him to endure the pain the way he clearly is. There's all these unanswered questions. Oh, yeah,
1: because that's the thing, too, in the video. When he's burning, he's not really reacting to the burn. He looks very serious and just, like, stoically... Uh, Yeah, I get the sense he's hunkered down. Like, he's just not, yeah. yeah. There's tension in his body, but he's also not, like... Screaming and pain yeah. as you would yeah. expect from someone who is head to toe in flames.
3: Exactly. It's interesting because I think if you look at like the Buddhists who set themselves on fire, and this is much more frequent because it's more of that tradition, they'll sit there and meditate, right? Like you can see the classic pictures in some cases of the person just sitting there stoically. And so there's obviously something going on on the mental, spiritual level to really transcend. But yeah, it's just, you know, going back to Gupta's case, my guess is as good as yours when it comes to filling in those little blanks. Like, why did he tweet? What did it mean? I tried to draw a clear line of what I could safely extrapolate about the whole story without really speculating. But he was he was definitely a very progressive person writing about multinational corporations. And there's a bit in there about Cambridge Analytica. So like I'm saying, for me, like for him too, He's consolidating all this messed up stuff happening in the world and channeling it through his art and through his poetry and ultimately through his act, through his final act of self-immolation. And the journalists who wrote about it declared, if you will, acknowledged that it's undeniably a political act. And yet we don't know how premeditated it was or, or what. It's very tragic and unfortunate. Because I guess we have to leave these questions unanswered.
1: Something I really liked about your article is that it just sort of challenged the reader to like just take it seriously and try to participate in the process of understanding what Arnav was trying to say with this act. To honor that by understanding it, I feel like is a really valuable cause. In that self emulation in this way, it's so extreme what you're subjecting yourself to. And the fact that Arnov didn't leave a note, but instead left a mystery to be found, like we can write the note if you dig a little bit.
0: Yeah. Like you definitely don't want to fill in blanks that aren't there, but at the same time you put on a USA t-shirt and go to the White House lawn to do this. Like you're saying, it's a very clear, vague statement. Yeah.
3: Yeah, Exactly. (laughs) As I covered in the article too, there was another famous case, uh, a guy named David Buckle, who self-immolated two years ago. And a journalist covered that story exactly one year after that event, kind of a profile piece. And that guy, David Buckle, was a lifelong activist for the environment and for gay rights. He was a lawyer, successful career relatively, but still so depressed from just the attrition of trying to change the world, being a social justice activist. It consumed him. Unlike Arnav Gupta, David Buckle actually left a suicide note. He said why he was doing it. He apologized for it, but it was nonetheless necessary from his point of view to send him a powerful message.
1: Brent, are there any passages in Arnav's big sort of magnum opus, his 15-page poem, Memoirs of a Shadow President, that give insights into his politics that you would like mention or quote?
3: So the things that jumped out at me, first of all, I tried to comment on like the opening lines that invite you into some sort of narrative. whilst you remain an asylum for the criminally insane Mark Twain's Yankee brain rolling all over this polarized terrain? And I don't know if I'm interpreting it correctly at all, right, but it's like he's talking about the United States as this crazy paradoxical place, right, rife with contradiction in its inception. And, you know, that's something I understand through the same lens he does of international relations and and history and political science. And Mark Twain is an interesting invocation because he's a satirist and very prolific critic. And yeah, his Yankee brain is rolling all over this polarized terrain. It's just sort of very poignant. And then immediately the next lines are finger on the pulse. Vegas was repulsed. Culture war is leaving the populace tremulous. So he's going right into the mass shootings.
0: Yeah, the Pulse nightclub and the Vegas
3: shooting. Right. And every time these things come up in the news, people say, oh, don't politicize it. Right. Which is just so offensive. It's the most horseshit excuse. About these events, right? Because these things are always political. And if there's any time to have a mature, responsible public discourse around things like guns, gun control, mass shootings, it's when they happen, for fuck's sake, right? Like listen to the people. Jumping ahead, the next highlight I have here is we are all but players, the truth obfuscated under multiple layers. And that's poetic in an invocation of Shakespeare, but then like with a kind of conspiratorial complexity that there's just so many layers to social reality, it's obscured and it's confusing. And then there's cultural commentary on like Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K. So the most political thing though, it probably says here to get explicit is DNC chairs did a Bernie nomination rob. America not ready for a democratic socialist heartthrob. I would interpret that kind of as an endorsement not to speak for him, but it's true in the sense that America is evidently not ready. You know, they make the anti-intellectual choice. There's a perverse relationship between democracy and fascism in this sense. And so I think he picks up on that. There's a reference to Charlottesville, right? And there's lots to go off there politically.
1: Yeah, there's a few individual parts where I feel like he's really demonstrating that he's quite well read politically. He's got a wide understanding in the way that it's sort of integrated. Now, like I'll be frank, like this isn't the most amazing poem I've ever read in the world. Like if someone just handed this to me, I wouldn't be like, "This is this right. <laughs> this rules." No offense to Arnav, like, but it's something like to piece through and read through. Like some of the references he makes, like one that stood out to me and Aaron was. If it's yellow, let it mellow. Amazon workers are afraid to bellow, which is a, obviously a reference to the controversy around Amazon workers needing to pee in bottles instead of go to the washroom because of like right. optimizing like more payment or something. Like
0: Welcome to the Amazon New Employees
1: Instructional Tape. Part one, bathroom policy. Now, as you may know, there's high demands of our workers on the floor to fulfill orders. That's what you're paid for. That's what we expect.
0: Think about how long it would take for you to walk all the way to a bathroom and pee there. And then reach under your workbench. What's there? A Bezos bottle. A standard one and a half liter plastic bottle
1: you're fulfilling an order you're going from one place to the next grabbing the pieces putting it together in the package and on the way you're gonna use that Bezos bottle that's two birds with one stone you're gonna hit your targets and you're not gonna get cold
0: let's take a look at how two of our best employees Sean and Aaron handle their bathroom needs
1: okay well she Uh, ordered a pencil sharpener Could
0: you hand me my Bezos bottle
1: oh yeah you got a whiz no problem man thanks that took time out of you fulfilling your orders. Oh, yeah, that really goes against best
0: practices. <laughs> you trying to undermine me? No, 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 of course not, man. We're friends. Oh, Mr. Bezos is coming. Oh, quick, should I turn away from him or should I turn towards him?
1: When Bezos visits the fulfillment center and you're using a Bezos bottle, always turn towards him.
0: Hey, Mr. Bezos, look at me. I'm being very efficient. Oh, thank you, Mr.
1: Bezos. Did you hear that? Mr. Yeah, I heard it. I don't think it's that impressive. Part two how to get ahead.
0: Now, a lot of companies come in right out of the gate, drilling into your head, teamwork, teamwork, teamwork. Here at Amazon,
1: we say, Cull or be culled. Chaff need not apply. We try to maintain a war of all against all. The more people are worried about their employment, the more that they're competing with one another, the more packages are fulfilled, and the more we're able to displace local businesses, which might cut into our profits.
0: Let's take a look at two of our strongest employees stepping over the bodies of the weak hey man i think i'm gonna go accidentally dump my bezos bottle all over chris oh nice man i hate (laughs) that piece of shit. did you see heather crying in the hallway yeah i think her husband was hit by a train Oh, man, that is awesome.
1: It's time to strike. It's an opportunity for us, for sure. Sad, obviously, that yeah, her no one wants their husband to die by train. But no. at the same time, mourning your husband in the hallway is not one of Bezos' 14 leadership principles. I'm totally going to talk to HR about her. On the fulfillment floor, there are no friends, only temporary alliances between enemies. It's easy to be paranoid in this environment.
0: Yeah, I I don't know if you know why Heather's husband was in front of that train, but you shouldn't ask me if I know why he was there. I'm just saying. Part three, keeping cool. Now, the Amazon fulfillment centers don't have any central air
1: conditioning. It's somewhere between desert or mild oven. Sometimes it's a bit too much for people. The first tip is to be resilient. Don't get tired, don't overheat, don't pass out. At a certain point, it really is on you. Many of our employees have learned to
0: control the core temperature of their body through sheer force of will. It
1: certainly can't hurt. The second tip is that during the hot months, twice a day, you can visit the employee's lounge to receive a string with three ice cubes on it. We're told by our employees that this is very refreshing. But
0: these are just some tips. Our employees come up with a lot of creative ways to stay cool. Let's take a look at how Sean and Aaron do it.
1: Man, you're spot on with this tip. You lick your hand and then you blow on it. It feels so nice. Staying cool, I'm staying. Actually, I
0: feel a little bit um, nauseous, like. Oh shit, he fell down. You gotta do something about it phone shoot a picture of him email to the supervisor i just thought i should let you know sean said haha ha, gonna sneak a quick nap don't tell anyone he definitely does not need any medical attention he's just showing that he is one of the weak i would be proud to testify in favor of his culling. winky face aaron
1: oh, okay Glad I got that taken care of. This concludes the warehouse work day. Please collect your Bezos bottles and queue at the dumping
0: point. All right, everybody, got your bottles? Line up, open them
1: up. And, and pour. pour, everyone, pour. Like There's all these like weird references or like he rhymes twin towers with opium flowers connecting like the war in the Middle East to the opium trade and like American military protecting right. opium fields. This guy's definitely been in the same like high information news matrix that we are.
3: Exactly. And I want to pick up on that because I agree with you. Like it may or may not be the greatest thing ever. Like we're speculating and it's retrospect. But I do this kind of stuff too, I write music and poetry and I don't think that it's fantastic, right? It's subjective, but what I wanna say is if I wasn't literate in this kind of stuff as you guys are too, right? Like I'm I'm not a poetry buff, right? But because I know what he's talking about that it has that resonance and salience and kind of a critical truth encoded into it. And I think that's what you're saying, right? And we're picking up on.
1: That's true, yeah. No. And actually to be totally fair and humble, I think that there's a, uh, probably a good chance that Arnav was better studied in the mm-hmm. way that poems should be shaped than me. So maybe there is something complex that he's doing with this that I'm not tapped into. Because I, I do, from the political messages that I can ascertain from it, he seems to be alluding at things that are smart and creative, from what I can tell, from what I can interpret. Because I'm just sensitive. It's like, I'm not trying to like criticize there's definitely some parts I really like, like, Sanders can't do all the baby making for you. Goo goo ga hashtag me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I slightly amended it, but the goo goo ga hashtag me too, it's a great line. But who makes a 15-page poem instead of a, a note? Like, why do we have this 15-page poem instead of just a quick note being like, I basically agree with the Green Party of the United States platform, please implement it in my absence or something like that, you know? Like, that's a nice yeah. simple... Message we're like, okay, I look up the Green Party platform, like, let's do our nov justice and put this into practice. It'd probably go pretty well. Yeah. If we all agreed on that.
3: I agree with you on a practical level, and we're assigning a lot of intention here that we don't necessarily know about, but if you're gonna do something in in desperation, the least you could have done would be to connect the dots for us a little better. (laughs) So then it wouldn't be left up to some random internet sleuths (laughs) to to do what we're doing now.
0: Yeah, I understand that we're definitely projecting some intentions onto him. And like, this seems like it wasn't deeply planned out to me. Like, we don't know, but it seems like it was a moment of maybe intense despair. Like, despair is the only thing that makes sense to me to why you would want to do this. Like, you know, I don't want to project into his emotions and say, I know what was going on, but what else? And it's in this poem, it's in his art, it's like.
3: Yeah. Again, I can speak from my own case that like, I've thought about self-immolating as a political act more like a decade ago when I was in university and was speculating what would change the world. Because it's just so ironic that the world is spiraling downward when it seems like it doesn't have to be that way. It so easily could be better. And so it speaks to the futility in just trying to make a difference in the world. Like you talk of despair, that you can come to this sort of decision logically, but obviously it's irrational at the same time, right? Like I'm in a healthier place. I would never dream of doing anything like it. And so this isn't to disparage him, but it might be safe to say that he was, for lack of a better word, crazy. Obviously, through his work life and through his art, he was cogent and sober, but, you know, he struggled with mental illness. So it may very well be that he was just in a very dark place or on a cocktail of medications or just had a psychotic break. Right. So, again, it's not to disparage him, but for us to understand and to rationalize it, that very may well be what happened. And so we're left with a bit of a mystery
0: Yeah. There's mystery around specifically what was going on, if he had any mental illness or if that was at play, if drugs were like, yes, tons of mystery. But the thing that I think draws us to this event and makes us feel like we're connected to him is like that feeling, that despair.
3: Yeah. And just to touch on something I said near the very beginning, this actually happens quite a lot. Like the Wikipedia page for a list of political self-immolations. You can just scroll down and be like, oh my God, I didn't know about any of these, right? It's just all over the world and each one has its own political context, its individual meaning to the person and people around them.
1: I mean, putting yourself in a position where you experience the feeling of all of your body's flesh burning before you die, like that sounds like a very unpleasant experience that's like uncomfortable to contemplate and hold in my head. In terms of imaginary discomforts that I can summon, I think it's the most severe whole body discomfort reaction that I can pull up. So when I think about like the politics or the meaning of a self-immolation like this, I'm thinking it's sort of like a signal of discomfort because it creates discomfort wherever it's contemplated. It's too horrible to bear what it really means, like to think about what it's like in practice. So like there's like this symbolic connection where you're experiencing the ultimate discomfort as a way of saying, like, I subject myself unflinchingly to this discomfort to compare it to the discomfort that I'm protesting, to compare it to the discomfort of the conditions outside of the burning ball of flesh that I'm becoming. When I think of the symbolism of self-immolation, that's intuitively what makes sense to me. I think in Chinese Buddhism, they call it shedding the body or discarding the body or something like that. What do you make of the philosophical realm of self-immolation? Like, what does it mean?
3: I think about that a lot. I think it's difficult to put into words, so forgive me if I botch it, but the thought occurs to me that people practice religion and they follow other people who have self-sacrificed like Jesus, right? Precisely because they made that sacrifice, right? There is something holy and transcendent in that act, right, of self-sacrifice using your own will in that capacity is so rare in ordinary people because we all displace as much of that agency as we can through religion and also relating it to mortality salience, you know, just the awareness that we all die anyways. And that to have the courage or the craziness or whatever, to lean into that inevitability in a way that you hope that you're making a contribution to life overall, you're sacrificing yourself, but you're trying to send a message This happens,
1: how many times was it, Sean? It's like five is the lowest year that I saw in the last like 20 years. Right.
0: This world we live in where this is like a common thing that happened.
1: Half a dozen, some years it peaks at like 30 or 50 or something.
0: A lot of people trace it back to 1963 and there was this iconic image that some journalists took of a Buddhist monk in Vietnam who set himself on fire. And that launching this tactic into the public awareness where some Vietnam soldiers did it a few years after. And then in Tibet monks, there was a rash of them in like the mid 2000s, where there was like hundreds in a couple of years, 2012, 2013, like hundreds of them doing it to protest the situation in Tibet. And... A self immolation started the arab spring, so like I feel like it's kind of a not that this would never have happened in the past, but like a uniquely modern thing in terms of photo evidence happening and like yeah. like the reason that we're talking about this is because there's photos of that event like I think if there was no video, even if you'd read the article, the photo's so striking, and the image of a person on fire is so. Symbologically, like, dense in that I'm letting these flames consume me. But the reason that this is a thing that happens in society, I think, is because of the spectacle and, like, how powerful it is, and these people feeling like there's no other way to express what's inside them. Because, like, I feel like we all have this despair for what's going on in society right now, like, activists, especially. I think we also kind of relate to as activists a lot of the time the sense that we're slowly letting ourselves be burned alive in order to try and do things for this cause. Like we're allowing ourselves to destroy ourselves in smaller ways, but not like, but this is like the crystallization of that. It's just like, use my body as fuel to make this spectacle, to get this idea, like, please, I need something to happen.
3: Yeah. I'm looking at this list of self-immolations, and if you just go down the list of what they're protesting, it's incredible. I mean, historically, a lot of these are Vietnam War, and then more recently, a lot of them are about Tibet. But outside of that, it's like all over the place, right? 2013 Bulgarian protests, social injustice as a broad category, discrimination of Arabs, Australian refugee policy, environmental pollution. That's David Buckle, actually homelessness and mental health issues, right? This is another person in the US. Like there's so many people we never would have heard of and we barely heard of Arnav Gupta. But there's even one here, there's November 10th, 2019, a 22 year old student in Lyon, France. And it's interesting to me because I went there on exchange for a semester, but this is a kid who was protesting because he couldn't afford 450 euros a month in living costs. And it actually says here in a post on Facebook, he blamed Emmanuel Macron, Francois Hollande, Nicolas Sarkozy. I'd never heard of this till now, but people are so desperate. And this is the macroeconomic functions that are just squeezing people. And so if they have no money, they have no agency to participate, even in this relatively meaningless world. Are there any right-wing self-immolations on the list?
1: Like, everything
3: you said there is all... Yeah, nothing that... (laughs) It sounds like everyone who
1: self-immolates a member of the Green Party. It's not just (laughs) Arnav.
3: Yeah, I'm going to speculate here and say, no, that the right-wingers are the mass shooters. Typically, they're finding a different way to express their despair. Like, terrorism occurs to me the same way because it's not to justify it, but it's an act of desperation. And the people that engage in it really have been pushed to the brink. And so... If you study terrorism, and I I took a course on it once, so I'm not just going off the media lens. You learn to sympathize with the terrorists, not necessarily to condone it, but to understand it. You need to have some sympathy. And whether it's right or wrong is sort of beside the point in the sense that since it's a political action, at least for them, fundamentally, it's about some greater good. So Bin Laden said it from his perspective or whatever, it was about US imperialism in the Middle East. And so these things are all connected, right? Terrorism doesn't come from nowhere. Self-immolation doesn't come from nowhere. There's connected chains of causation. And we have to understand it in order to eliminate it, so to speak. You can't just combat it with force, especially with terrorism. Terrorism is sometimes a response to force. Terrorism is definitely not exclusively a Middle Eastern phenomenon like there's all many forms of white terrorism and there was many forms of European terrorism in the 70s and 80s so it's important we understand these in that political context and also I had a thought that maybe between you know the philosophy of it and the politics of it is the history these are all people thinking about history in a sense that they want to influence history so they'll do these dramatic actions because they're thinking about the big picture, not their individual lives.
1: I guess self- immolation if you're thinking of yourself as small compared to a big picture that you need to somehow influence self-immolation is like the biggest thing you can do with your body. I don't, we could see an example like in Tunisia with the kickoff of the Arab Spring was a Tunisian shop owner who self-immolated after he had his, like, supplies confiscated and he was humiliated and stuff. And he had a real impact there. But then when you look at the list, there's a lot that didn't really, as far as I can tell, they didn't have a major impact. Yeah. But, like, these people were approaching the issues that were facing them. So, like, one that stuck out to me is sort of not like the others was there was a YouTuber incel who, in 2008, self-identified black cell, which are black incels. He self-immolated in 2018, and his last tweet was no women find me attractive. Right. I think it's really the only one that I can see here that has a political reason behind it that isn't, oh, let's see, no, 2017, anti-Islam self-immolation, saying that Germany was being Islamized. Sorry, I'm just learning as I'm on the mic. Yeah,
3: yeah, (laughs) I didn't know anything until this call about the Black Cell case. But yeah, it's extra tragic because there's not necessarily a direct political advocacy for anything. It's just, it's still motivated by desperation but yeah, it desperation. serves no it. function.
0: It's interesting to me, the terrorism comparison, because yeah, they're both these big bombastic political statements in a way that hurt people. But the difference is, are you hurting other people along with yourself or just yourself? Like self-immolation is like the most violent thing you can do that's not going to hurt anybody. Yeah, It's interesting. The comparison there, like I definitely see, I think they're rooted in a lot of similar problems in the world and similar, probably emotional reactions. But I think there's a difference there in the whether your rage is directed in such a way that you want to hurt people or if you just want to not exist. Yeah. I just got thinking on the similarities and differences. It was really interesting.
3: Yeah, there's definitely differences. Like, I don't mean to put them in the same box too much. But I guess two things that I want to reiterate. One is that we don't condone any of this. Just because we also agree with kind of the politics of it doesn't mean we agree it should happen
0: i think people should not do this like yeah yeah <laughs> it's my general tank like yeah. if you if you're asking me for advice <laughs> my advice is don't
1: yeah i recommend <laughs> even like don't think about it too much yeah yeah like, yeah no don't don't <laughs> hold it in your mind's eye for too long it's like worthy really of some contemplation but i mean it's just uncomfortable it's just making some things in my body fire off to just hold this in my mind it's unpleasant
0: and i mean we're covering this one but the next one might be even more completely forgotten.
3: In yeah, world. I think the, the takeaway is history just keeps giving us these events, right? Whether it's terrorism or mass shootings or self-immolation or whatever, other expressions of despair. And of course, the expression diseases of despair, right? The people are just dying, committing suicide or just overdosing because of economic conditions and addiction to opioids and stuff like that. But we got to always try to drill down and get back to the point, right? The point is to come together as a collective, as a species, to actually think sociologically and solve the root problems. All of these things are motivated and contextualized by circumstances that can be corrected On some level, we know what we have to do. I think progressive people, especially, you know, you just want to advocate for basic health care, universal education, jobs guarantee within a Green New Deal. These are the things that have to happen. These are now increasingly becoming issues of planetary survival, right? I mean, this is why this is a live issue for me every day, not just self-immolation, but like, what is it actually about, Can we just give people what they need and deserve in terms of rights and respect so that they don't have to protest? I think it's important to this particular issue, self-immolation or any type of social issue, not to compartmentalize it. Like to just put all self-immolation in the mental illness box doesn't tell us anything and it doesn't help prevent it. Right. So I'm advocating just a much deeper concern and inquiry and advocacy for social change. And so there's the frame of people not caring about this particular event. Like none of my friends or colleagues even were aware or able to discuss it, right? But then if I consider my own personal efforts to advocate for some of these things, like to advocate for Bernie Sanders, it was very difficult. Like I was constantly surprised at how many so-called smart, intellectual, educated people were just apathetic about politics or just apolitical, or they didn't think Bernie was good enough, but they didn't have an alternative. I've heard every type of excuse, and all of it strikes me as just excuses, just satisfying, compromising, making unnecessary trade-offs, when really we have to unapologetically continue to advocate for the best possible politics, right? And the socialist movement is the way to do it. Like I don't go around calling myself a socialist, but I do call myself a sociologist and those things are connected. There's so many great content creators and stuff and the idea of a socialist movement needs to be demystified and depoliticized because it is kind of a root level intervention that we're trying to make here to address so many things. But in the context of today's discussion, this would address this self-immolation issue and, and the politics he was advocating for.
1: I think you're right that all of these self-immolations could be stopped under a society that established some like, basic social concern that is not had. Although we do see self-immolations happening in countries that have more or less social services. In most of these cases, there's a real material desperation component. The Tunisian revolution example is a good example of that. And the underlying cause of this sort of desperation is something that can be approached through politics. A lot of the things that people are protesting is that they feel that the government is corrupt or somehow not serving them or that they don't have a voice in society or that they're marginalized or invisible. They don't have any power or leverage in society. And so the biggest thing that they think they can do, it's almost like you were saying before, like looking at the big picture and feeling powerless to be a big person in the big picture, if if that makes sense. Like, it's not that you're going to be able to participate in an iterative process to make the world better. That iterative process of self-development and say, like starting a nonprofit organization or like starting an activist cell or starting what, like all that work that goes into if I'm against environmental pollution, continuing on my political crusade, but being like, this is the end of the political crusade. I'm going out with a bang or I'm not even going to go on the political crusade because I'm small against history. The pain is too great. And I'm going to do one last big show before I go out and use up my body as I pass on to make this last political statement. It strikes me that there's this sense of that I'm small against bigness. I'm going to explode is my biggest chance. (laughs) It's like the biggest thing I can do against this enormous system. Yeah. I think it's true that we could find ways to make people feel big enough that they know that their actions have meaning and that people like Arnov or people like David Buckle or people like Mohamed Bouazizi in Tunisia, we need to give them the opportunity to participate in the big picture, but as individuals who live full thriving lives, and that when they have grievances against the government, there's meaningful ways to make their grievances heard, find people and work with others who have similar grievances to achieve the changes that they want, to be part of a participatory society, not just one that provides basic needs like healthcare and stuff, although that's obviously great. And like you said, the minimum conditions, but also gives people the capacity to proactively participate in their lives and proactively participate in the human life of species, all of us like together, because these things strike me as an effect of people not having that. And if you gave people that you would have self-immolation dry up, you'd be like, well, there's been no self-immolation this year Yeah, because people were being listened to. And that's part of what I really liked about the article and that I just felt like you were trying to listen to this guy and you were trying to like not put too much onto him that was coming from you, but just be like, I just want to hear what did this guy have to say? And this is what he had to say. And it wasn't part of the story.
0: Just to tag up on what you're saying about what people need is like an ability to feel like they can participate in something that will help bring about the changes that they need in the world around them. You were talking about having a society that does that for people, which is like what we want to do and where we want to go. But as you were talking about it, I also just tied it to what Brent was mentioning a moment ago about socialist movement building. And that's kind of like the core of what effective movement building can do for people is like to give all of the people who see this event with Arnav Gupta and like feel his despair with him to give all those people a place to participate in something that is making meaningful progress towards trying to like remedy that. Like that's the way we can try to offer some of that to people today is to build movements that people can join that are working on these things.
3: Yeah, I wanted to pick up off a few of those things too about being heard and having an outlet for that. We're not saying that oh, people need more access to therapy. I mean, yes, they do, obviously, universal healthcare and all that. But on a political level, there needs to be more real participatory democracy and real opportunity to, without any fear of retribution or disparagement or criminalization, you got to be able to critique the government, right? You got to be able to advocate for these things. And like, look what's happening with the protests and police brutality, right? It's like, in part literally protest about police brutality and they're confirming everything that we're criticizing that they're basically jackbooted thugs and fascists that are trigger happy they can't help themselves they're just hurting and murdering people in the streets right so there's no especially in the united states there's no political structure to invite being heard on those terms and if only there was right things would be completely different So I want to relate it to a little bit. There's this book called The Listening Society and these Nordic metamodernists, they have two books now and one's kind of on psychological development and the second is on sociological development. So they work quite well together, but the title The Listening Society is important and it resonated with me because it speaks to this comprehensive welfare state plus where everyone is really heard. And again, I don't just mean like, You get to vent in a therapy session, but your political concerns are translated to the systemic level. And everyone's material needs are met, of course, and the earth itself is also heard and also meditation is encouraged and taught so you can practice the art of listening. So that is really what it comes down to, isn't it?
1: Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by having your voice really be heard. It's a deep human need that we all have to know that others
0: see us and hear us.
1: And being heard can be something that's a lifesaver. When you're trying to give the type of feedback that could potentially change the actions undertaken by others, knowing that the feedback you've given has been taken seriously and is being acted upon, that comfort and trust is an experience that everyone deserves.
0: It's physiological. When you look into the eyes of another human being speaking with your voice, which contains all of the inflection, hesitation, and intricacies of your experience that can only be conveyed through your voice because it's yours, and and you see that flicker of recognition in your partner's eyes and you know that they understood what you said, that's physically comforting. It releases neurotransmitters, which facilitate bonding and a feeling of being safe. That's what having your voice heard feels like.
1: So that's why we at the Wrongtopian Democratic High Command have invented a new method to connect the voices of citizens around the world to their elected representatives and people in power. This revolutionary system will mean that everyone's voices are finally, truly, and deeply heard, literally. Oh,
0: you're saying my voice can literally be truly
1: heard? Absolutely, just get into the booth here and we're just gonna have to test your voice out, so just if you can read from the page. Testing, testing, one, two, three,
0: this is my voice.
1: The constituent voices from all around the world travel across a grid network of light-speed telecommunications technology to deliver their voice directly to their leaders. What does it look like for the leaders? Something like this. Hello? Greetings, regional representative. To hear the voices of your constituents, press 1 or say, I want to hear the voices. Uh,
0: you better believe. I want to hear the voices. Uh.
1: Loading directory. Uh, this
0: is the true meat of it
3: testing one two three this is my voice huh.
0: yeah all right so testing. Testing. testing
3: one two three this is my voice that's the
0: kind of experience i don't have the voices of the people that this job is all about i'm so voice how did representatives ever represent their constituents before this this is revolutionary i'm writing so many testing. notes here is my voice. so much inspiration one, two,
3: three. This when is they're my just voice. an
0: undifferentiated mass of people it's one thing but when you hear their voices you connect to them as individuals and just want what's best for them. The system works. People consider your voices heard.
1: Today's episode of Seriously Wrong proudly brought to you by having your voice be meaningfully heard. It's our commitment at the Democratic High Command of Wrongtopia. Our solemn commitment.
3: All hail the Democratic High Command.
1: Yeah, well, I actually read The Listening Society a few years back Brent, you identify as a metamodernist. So you run the abstract organization. That's right. So it's a metamodernist think tank. We haven't covered it much on the show. Can you describe what metamodernism means to you? Like, why do you identify yeah. with that?
3: I'll do my best. It's definitely not a consistent term. So most of us don't go calling ourselves metamodernists. It's more like there's a metamodern discourse. There's a field and we practice it. We study it. But that's not a definition <laughs> to kind of define it, right? You have these terms like modernism and postmodernism, and they represent huge containers of history and of art and culture and philosophy. But since the turn of the century, and the turn of the millennium, in fact, right, there's this awareness and the salience of a different world, a new paradigm emerging. And that's partly predicated on things like the internet coming online, the global economy being more integrated and the financialization that culminates in various crises. And then there's what they call the war on terror and alter globalization, right? These global waves of protests that kind of got kicked off in 1999 with the WTO protests. So these are the data points that this theory hangs on. But what you're trying to do is really synthesize, but also disambiguate the other sub paradigms like modernism and postmodernism trying to be very unconventional and transformative and and divine, if you will. It's really a process, and it's related to process theology and liberation theology and object-oriented ontology. So just quickly,
0: I got my Google out because I didn't know any of those three terms. Process theology is all forms of theology that emphasize event, occurrence, or becoming over substance. So it's about becoming over being. Liberation theology is a synthesis of Christian theology and socioeconomic analysis that emphasizes social concern for the poor and political liberation for oppressed peoples. Object-oriented ontology basically seems uh, like a critique of anthropocentrism in philosophy, saying we can't understand everything just by how it looks to people, but we have to try and understand things on their own terms and how they interact and affect each other, not just in terms of human experience, but in terms of their own independent existence,
1: so metamodernism is a school of discourse or thought that's aimed on reconciling modernist and postmodernist ideas and maybe like using their tension to create a set of ideas that sort of like not balances them but integrates the best of both of them, like a Hegelian dialectic like <laughs> sublating, like destroying both postmodernism and modernism and abolishing them at the same time retaining them and moving more towards ethics and more towards reason in the process. Is that a fair characterization of what metamodernism is trying to do?
3: Yeah, I would say so. You just gave a complex, very sufficient answer. But I would also say it's an oversimplification, like it's a necessary oversimplification, right? So I couldn't describe it better myself, right? But fundamentally, it's like postmodernism gives way to this proliferation of concepts and discourses. And at some point we have to try to reconcile it and bring it back down to earth. I've developed it on my own. And I also kind of take a meta perspective on the other schools of thought that have emerged just to be crude. Like I identify like what I call the Dutch school and the Nordic school. The first one is Dutch authors who popularized the term and they actually work out of London. And this is an international effort but I just call it the Dutch school. It's kind of a shortcut. And then the Nordic school is actually people based in like Stockholm. So the authors of those books are from Sweden and Denmark, respectively. And then they're part of a network that is like in London and in Berlin. And then there's me over here in Canada. I try to do an independent school and then triangulate with the others because there's a lot of good material there, right? So I'm really triangulating between what is explicit in those discourses and what I discover in in different fields. So for me, though, it's very actively political. Like I tried to interpret the Bernie Sanders movement as proto-metamodern. It consolidated all of the necessary policy platform prescriptions that are needed to set the world on the right course. And so my project, The Abstract Organization, is partly very real and grounded and sociological but it's partly artistic too and playful and self-effacing because i think this is what is appropriate and functional and avant-garde if you will for the age that we're in it's kind of a end times so to speak but that doesn't stop us from trying to save the world as it were so but as a paradigm or as a discourse you know it's still emerging it's still a work in progress it's Not something that's very well known, but there's a basic menu of ways in, right? And The Listening Society is one of those ways in, as it was the the first book in a series by this quasi-fictional but very sincere philosopher character, Hansi Freinach. Obviously, the culture war downsamples and perverts it, as opposed to having a constructive dialogue through it. So the least we can do is to kind of frame it as you did, that it's this... Hegelian synthesis between the two, but when you actually engage in it, the boundaries dissolve. You lose a sense of what modernism is, even like where are the boundaries. And so, one thing that Hanzi does is map stages of human development and societal development. And so, it's not just modernism and postmodernism, but they go back further to say that there's animus stage of development and then like Faustian and post Faustian. So there's seven levels all in all to work through, and modernism would be like the fifth in their case. So
1: Hansi Freinacht, who's a fictional character relaying sincere sentiments from like a group of collaborators, for the purposes of this sort of narrative about Hansi Freinacht, here's his philosophy, it's part of the game is that like, it's sort of like a wink, we know he's not real, and you may or may not know he's not real, but... It's all part of like the building up of the ideas.
3: Yeah. So the author is a pen name for two guys. They're co-authors. And one is more of a historian, one's more of a sociologist, but they have a good dynamic. And so, you know, if you read the books, there's a kind of the voice of this fictional author guiding you through it, but it's also sociologically grounded. So they've done the homework, right? It's a very ambitious project in this sense. And when I read a lot of contemporary academic stuff it might be more specialized in some other field but like a lot of it lacks a grand vision right so metamodernism tries to do this sincere ironic move that is transfigurative and psychoactive and so it has many expressions now at this point but like I say it's still relatively underdeveloped unknown but you can find it in art and, and in philosophy and in politics of various extents. As a group, we don't have much collective agency, but insofar as Hansi has a vision and I sort of have a vision, it's of a prefigurative politics that we have to fast track and accelerate. And especially, I think a lot about this decade and this window we have. And just, again, to bring it back to the basics of taking care of people and taking care of the planet, two major attractors jump out. One is the climate change deadline that the UN gave us right? So let's just say we have until 2030 to have a concerted action. And then the technological singularity, roughly it's been calculated and honed in on the year 2029. And one of the things I worked on over the past year was a smart cities book. So I dove into some of this research. There's a momentum to all of that, that is indifferent to politics. And yet these things are connected, right? So we can't keep going in the hypermodern direction. So like there's a juxtaposition between metamodernism and hypermodernism. At the end of the 80s, at the end of the Cold War, postmodernism kind of bifurcates into these two paths. So the hypermodernism one is the market fundamentalist, techno-optimist, capitalist realism, and all these things that feed into our alienation and the self-destruction. And the metamodern path which was also written about at that time but was not discovered was not discussed right so it's one of these forgotten things that I try to revive the metamodern path is you know more communitarian and more the technology is more responsive to human needs and so it does feed back into this idea of a listening society can we establish the first principles to bring it into reality
0: Yeah, we've talked on the show before about the difference between amongst people who call themselves accelerationists, there are left accelerationists who are like Cernicek and Williams. They wrote the book Inventing the Future. We've talked about a lot on the show, but then there's also people like Nick Land, who it feels like fits in a bit more into what you're saying about hypermodernism, Yeah, but with reference to the technological singularity, which is something I'm not really sure about as whether I believe that
1: it's a thing. Yeah, and
3: that's fair, yeah.
1: How do we define singularity I think is-
3: Yeah, we can argue, I'm not a hardliner on it, but it's generally defined as general AI. And so AI is going through these iterations. And so I prefer to think that there's multiple singularities and that maybe some have already happened and some are yet to happen. But I would say that if we were to say it will occur in 2029 or around that period, that it'll be related to not just AI, but automation and machine learning and how we start to employ those things as generative tools to aid our decision making. And so this is why for me, it's so important to emphasize and to scaffold human abstraction because AI is all about abstraction. And if we don't know how to program it, and make it considerate of human abstraction. And if we just outsource our intelligence to the computer without critical thinking, then we're lost, then we're committed to the hypermodern path.
0: Yeah, whatever form the technology takes in the near future, the recent past has shown us that shit can happen that nobody thought was possible whatever's coming technologically, we want to use it for good and not evil. I don't know. I guess I was just struck as you were talking by like how salient it actually is. We think about dystopian technological futures a lot in a society for yeah. a reason, because yeah, it could really happen.
3: Yeah. And we should do everything we can to prevent it. We should enjoy it for what it is in the movies, <laughs> but we shouldn't actually want any of it to happen. And I'm, really drawn to left accelerationism in the sense you mentioned, like Cernachek and Williams, because for a couple of reasons, I mean, one, because it's left and it's socialist and they're demanding and advocating that we demand things like UBI and all that. Right. But also in a more uniquely personal way to my project is abstraction, because they talk a lot about abstraction in their book. And so this is my ongoing project to decode what's going on with capitalism, right? Because from Hegel and Marx to today to financial capitalism, abstraction is this process that runs us, right? Like it's called real abstraction often. And that's just the abstraction in the world. That is, it uses us. Our personal mental abstraction becomes just a a servant of this force. And so we need to understand it in order to subvert it. So whenever a scholar is seriously, lucidly talking about the abstraction of capital, it's just very salient for me.
0: An early article of yours that I read through and really liked that I think might make what you just said a bit more concrete for people is that it was this article on systemic conspiracy. And you talk about all of these really specific examples of the way in which the capitalist society we live in right now isn't necessarily the type of conspiracy that conspiracy theorists think it is, but that there are all these processes in society that conspire against normal everyday people that when taken collectively, like just feel like this target on all of us. And what you're saying just now about the way that abstract processes can be so real and impactful on our everyday life, like leftists know that, like we talk about capitalism all the time and what it means for us and what it has done to our lives and our society and how we need to overcome it. And that, but like capitalism is a thing that you can't even get people to agree on the definition of in a discussion online it's something that's so slippery but yet so central to everything that we care and talk about
3: yeah what occurs to me is always is is how difficult abstraction is to talk about so abstraction fundamentally is like thinking and philosophy at the basic level of first principles that's kind of where I always go back to. In that article you mentioned, the subtitle, it includes the abstraction of war. So that's interesting to me too, just how war is so abstracted in different ways. It becomes this thing that's translated into different yeah, like categories. So yeah, you view it differently. And, we declare
0: and, war. It's now been
3: declared yeah. and we're
0: in war. Yeah,
3: the it. The ugliness of it is hidden, purposefully obscured. It's a type of conspiracy in its own right. But then we glorify violence in fiction and in film and conflict, and so we're trapped in this paradox precisely because we're not aware of how this abstraction process dictates our life on a more meta level and how our individual decisions scale up into completely different types of events on the macro level. You know, and as time goes on, society is becoming more abstract in the sense that it's getting more complex, more fragmented, more ephemeral, and virtual and digital. So got to get back to the concrete.
0: Yeah, the other question I wanted to ask you just about the metamodernism stuff is you've also been somewhat of a critic of various people in the metamodernism sphere. I'm just wondering if you wanted to talk a little, like you talked about what you liked about it, but I'm just curious if you had (laughs) any criticisms you wanted to mention. Yeah,
3: sure. I've actually engaged in even more criticism in the past few weeks. So there's many different spaces that are adjacent, right? So there's something called integral theory and there's something called game B and game B is itself adjacent to the intellectual dark web. The Weinstein brothers are kind of engaged in both. So I've criticized a lot of that type of stuff, those spaces for being apolitical or anti-political in the culture war and also misreading or being disinterested in metamodernism itself. As time goes on, I don't understand how people can talk about postmodernism or critique it without a higher frame, a proper meta-context, right? And it's academically irresponsible to talk outside of that, I think. So I've been critical on those grounds, just the sloppiness of it, and we're kind of united by this interest in these topics, but these communities have also been divided by politics. So Jordan Peterson comes along in the intellectual dark web, and it actually creates a kind of schism in a lot of these communities because they don't have the literacy to process what is being said, and they don't actually have the group cohesion or the skills that they thought they did to have conflict resolution and to work through that trauma. So, I try to provide that kind of insight over this time. And along the themes of what we're discussing about listening and being heard, I've largely been ignored because these things are kind of like black elephants. They're topics people don't want to talk about because it's complicated or it implicates them or whatever. And I think it's necessary to intervene because there's this thing called the meta crisis, right? It's the idea of the unfolding root causes of all crises we're only going to seriously intervene on that if we can grapple with these tough questions between these groups. So my latest article is about consensus building. It's quite a radical proposition. And I think it's necessary and applicable to not just a lot of different of these different groups, but I think the left, different cohorts on the left would do well to start practicing this. So it's, we're not just endlessly debating different people or, or right-wing trolls or whatever, but there's actually some coalition building and consensus building, and not just around hot topics, but I mean around these kind of meta-theoretical perspectives and things like climate change, obviously, and then there can be some consensus around uncertainty itself, but one of the things I've been critical of of these communities is they're so afraid of certainty that they actually dismiss a lot of good ideas. Because it, there's just too much conviction behind, for example, the Bernie Sanders movement. So they're more comfortable being a skeptic.
0: Yeah, that kind of like centrist. Yeah. Right.
3: And that's the key word is I've been so critical of a lot of centrists and reactionaries, which overlap with the center and the right wing, because it's anti-political. Fundamentally, leftists go to the efforts to investigate these things and engage on their terms. But then fundamentally, you find like they're not for anything. They're just contrarian against the leftist cause because for whatever valid reason from their perspective, right? But there's a lot of identity issues going on. There's a lot of undeveloped ideas, a lot of letting politics divide us, right? This kind of idea of a a vampire castle, as opposed to, you know, uniting behind the common struggle, right? And again, it's things like climate change, economic justice, epistemic justice is a concept I'm researching. Like, can we have more Fairness and equality in knowledge itself. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And what you're saying totally matches with my experience of the sort of like meta modern community, but also a lot of online intellectual communities that get into these sort of like meta questions. When Aaron and I first started the show in 2014, we were very interested in this same category of stuff. There's a lot of like these online communities of intellectualism for intellectualism's sake that I've participated in passively over the last six years. Mm -hmm. When I personally apply the principles that makes me identify with these organizations around whatever type of like rationality and ethics or trying to like look beyond and look at the big picture or whatever. And like you're saying, like climate change is obvious. There's all these things like these conclusions that I come to when applying these principles that attract me to these intellectual communities are somehow not the inherent just known consensus within those communities. So metamodernism has a type of implicit critique of postmodernism saying that we shouldn't give up entirely, but we should try to create our own narratives consciously with the decision to change society and and build the narratives consciously to change society, building on the remnants from the postmodern critique of the way things are. So, metamodernism has this type of implicit critique of postmodernism, and somehow it creates a community of people who are critical of postmodernism from one lens. And then you have someone like Jordan Peterson or the intellectual dark web. Basically, you have this downsampled, telephone gamed version of conservative politics being packaged as a type of rationality. These sort of like rationalists or otherwise like online intellectual communities seem to have a confusion between these different types of, say, like critiques of postmodernism that are then put right next to each other and put in the same space. And what you say about like the contrarians also really rings true to me, that there's people in these sort of communities also that really enjoy finding the top of the signaling pile in the sense of being like both sides are wrong and like I'm alone, smart and above it. And the solution is to do nothing but continue commentary along these lines and building reputation for my above it allness. That really resonates is true with the Facebook groups and Twitter feeds that I saw develop between, say, 2014 and now, and how these communities yeah. have flourished organically to have these diversities within them.
3: The Dutch school guys, Vermeulen and Vandenacker, they had a famous paper in, like, 2010. That's what launched their popularity and inspired people like Shia LaBeouf right? and Luke Turner, and they collaborated, and so there's that sort of stream of it. I just bring that up because... So much happened between 2010 and now 2020, right? Like 2014, especially that's when the roots of the intellectual dark web was laid when Sam Harris started to drift over to the right and things like this. And so I wanted to frame that historically, because, like you say, I think a lot of us were aware of the emergence of these meta discourses, but not sure where it was going. and But I wanted to touch on the both sides that you mentioned because that's something I've been very critical of. There is not just two sides. That is a major fallacy going around intellectuals and they use it as a rhetorical tactic to rise above them and, and play mediator, right? They may even have good intentions, but it does a disservice to the content on the ground. And of course, there's not two sides. I mean, at minimum, I frame it as three sides. There's a socialist left, a liberal center and a reactionary right. And so there's a dynamic there that you wouldn't even recognize if you're just saying both sides, both sides are crazy or both sides are corrupt. So that's something I've been critical of in particular people. And it's a very persistent anti-intellectual move, I would say. And this is the latest direction my work is taking. I recorded an interview about anti-intellectualism on Saturday and writing an article about it now. Because it's so difficult to dive into the nuance of this question, because it's like, okay, well, what's more intellectual than the next thing, right? It's this constant game of comparison. But at least it enables us to point out and call out the obvious examples of anti intellectualism, right? So Jordan Peterson, clearly an intellectual by some measures, right? Has a PhD all that, but he totally misrepresents Marxism, just as a word, just as a basic word, and and socialism and feminism. And so he filters these things through his anger, his, his distortion field, and it gets refracted through his largely white male reactionary audience. And so this is a very irresponsible thing to do as a public intellectual, yet that's what he leans into. And like, not to say grifter, but I think, I mean, it's very obvious that these guys have and are profiting from what they do. And once you start profiting from something, it's very difficult to change and to see the error of your ways.
0: Welcome back to Aaron. Today, we have a very special interview with Morgan J. Beattie. As you know, he's the author of the top-selling book, Water Your Damn Plants, Seven Golden Rules for Finding Balance Between Order and Chaos. And he has graciously invited me into his attic sweat lodge today. Morgan Beatty, thank you so much.
2: Thank you very much for having me on. I'm a, I'm a bit of an Aaron fan,
0: so it's nice to be able to meet you in person. Well, thank you, too. I, you know, I'm a fan of yours as well.
2: Oh, thank you. A dear friend of mine, when he was... Doing the ritual to turn me into the chief of the Kowakowaka people. Now I'm actually their leader now. Oh, are you? Fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. uh,
0: We'll have to fact check that. Yeah, please do. I'll confirm it. And it's all in my book. Now, I don't want to gotcha question or anything. I don't want to jump you, but I have to say...
2: These days I feel like I'm ducking and covering every five minutes one of these things. You know... I
0: took a look at some of the plants that you have in your porch. Beautiful plants. Thank you very much. I care deeply for them. A few of them looked a little droopy, and so I touched the soil, and it felt dry. I was just wondering, did you remember to water your plants today? Of course. I watered my plants.
2: I'm Morgan fucking Beattie. I wrote a goddamn book about it. Just, my
0: God. It felt dry. It felt, everyone well, makes mistakes. It felt dry people, to you. People forget. You know, even the best of us can forget sometimes. Never hurts to have a reminder. Thanks, but no thanks, bucko. I got my
2: plants covered. I'm helping people. They write to me. They write letters. Morgan, you're filling a absence of a dad role in my life. Morgan, your telecon neo communalist political correctness gone crazy changed my life. I help people. I'm a hero. I'm incorruptible. I've already studied everything, and I already know everything. Yeah, I
0: mean, you're a very effective communicator Thank of some you. basic common sense. You're wow. you know, a wonderful speaker. I don't know about some of those last few things you said. If I can show everything. you my email we can, we can inbox always, right now. I, I understand that, but that might be a skewed sample. Well, you think people mean don't perfect. write terrible
2: things to me, too? People write horrible oh, things I'm, to I'm me. Oh, I'm sure
0: they do. I know they do.
2: Sometimes I feel like they're all coming for me, you know? It's a bloody lot to take in.
0: Of course I can't handle all the attention. Sean, would you... Just make sure to fill up that water bottle when we head out. We'll throw a little water in.
2: Now you that don't nice. do that.
0: Now, <laughs> oh, sorry, you weren't supposed to hear that. What that do you was... mean?
2: I'm not supposed to. I'm sitting right here, goddamn it. We're doing a televised interview. You're trying to humiliate me in front of your youth audience.
0: You know, I can't lie. It's all going in the video because, I... <laughs> goddamn. But maybe you should take a step out of the public eye for a year no, and just reflect.
2: I'm gonna stay in the public eye and I'm gonna push myself to my bloody limit.
0: At, at least take a break from the email inbox. Don't don't read any more that praise. That box
2: tells me i'm a god never gonna stop checking that inbox
0: after the break on Aaron, we talked to morgan about his grandmother
2: why, why, why are you bringing up my grandmother well esther Beery was she was a goddamn sorry she was she was well she it's, was it's not damn, our position
0: she, we think she had the perfect amount of babies no Helen she's Aaron. a
2: goddamn she's a goddamn incredible person you bloody disrespectful! Oh Bring no, I'm trying to get your sizzle tape of old beauty. You're just like everyone else. You're a vulture. You're near this. You no, knew this. No, I really, how I, feel like, about I enjoyed it. your book.
0: I've uh, liked oh, a lot I of your lectures. You I, I just think you're going off a bit. You need to take a break. <laughs> I'm
2: just a little tired. It's okay. We all
0: get tired. It is okay. It is I can okay. still do the circuit. I'm just don't play this tape on your show. Well. That's not my decision, that's the producer's decision, and oh. I can tell you right now what decision they're going to make, and it's all going What are in. their
3: plans? So, the best I could say about them is that they're uninformed, good-intentioned thought leaders that have become pushed further right by the left, and pulled further right by the right, and been compensated for in the process, since they all believe in capitalism. It must therefore be a moral good, right? <laughs>
1: Is that an example of a systemic conspiracy of, say, like, someone gets money based on their political opinions, so therefore it becomes unprofitable to change their political opinions, or, like, their thinking becomes constricted by that, and so therefore money itself creates this conspiratorial action to take place without anyone needing to conspire to do it? Is that the, the concept there?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Especially the last phrase you mentioned there, like, without anyone having to conspire to do it. Right? So somebody like Chomsky, who disparages conspiracy theory but is very critical of institutions, he can kind of insert himself into the in-between space and it's actually through people like him that I try to build more of a meta perspective on this. It includes, on one end of the spectrum, ordinary consumers. How we vote with our wallet, how we reproduce the system is part of the conspiracy. Two at the other end of the spectrum, you know, very powerful actors, the intentional kind and unintentional kind. And I think of like lobbyists and certain types of lawyers and stuff. And it's weird because sometimes you can access these people, right? And you can interview them. And they're so candid because they don't think they're doing anything wrong, (laughs) you know? They're just working within the system. But the system creates all sorts of conspiratorial effects. We're all just subjugated to this machine to the extent that we are unaware of it.
0: I always found it useful for trying to communicate what you're talking about to list a few of the examples. So like one of them is tacit collusion, where various firms, without explicitly saying they're going to agree to something, like, you know, price fixing or any anything, do it because they know it's in their interest to do so. Like major companies, there's this tacit collusion. It's a thing that can happen in the society that's incentivized by the society. Like an industry standard profit margin. Yeah, and like the second one on the list is moral hazard. So like moral hazards are when entities have incentives to increase exposure to risk because they don't bear the full costs of that risk. This is related to externalities. Things that it's profitable to keep doing that are damaging because it's only damaging you a little bit. It's damaging everybody a little bit. So it's a lot of damage in total, but to you, it's not so much. It's the moral hazard. And there's like things like spin, doublespeak, media manipulation and disinformation, electoral fraud, war profiteering. These are some of the things you draw on to create this description of the ways in which systems conspire against all of us to make society worse.
3: I love the list. (laughs) I'm glad you brought it up. But what occurs to me too is how somebody could still operate in the corporate world, for example, and not be aware of these things or it not be relevant to their job, right? And in a corporation, there's so much division of labor, right? So everyone's a specialist of some kind, but then that's also compartmentalized, The term comes from like black projects. Like if you worked on the uh, stealth fighter, you worked on one part of it and you didn't know who was working on the rest of it or what it looked like, right? And so this is how the systemic conspiracy works against us. And again, with no cabal at the top, I mean, there is a hierarchy, but in the case of compartmentalization, people just don't have the full picture. And through research, I'm trying to kind of map the conceptual landscape of it, right? That's why all these concepts are so important, like whitewashing, white collar crime, perverse incentives. So you could be in the corporate world or you could be in the military-industrial complex and maybe you engage in one of these things once in a while, right? Cronyism, maybe you hire your friend or your brother or whatever, Or cover-up. Maybe something happens and you're personally incentivized and you want to protect the group and protect the identities. That's what happened with Pat Tillman, this famous NFL player. He went to, I think, fight in the Iraq war to be an all-American hero. He actually got killed by friendly fire. And then they made a cover-up story. So this is just a small cover-up story within the military industrial complex misadventures. But it's so easy for this to perpetuate itself because it's just so huge and so incomprehensible that you have to map it out to see how these things are connected and how at the local level we all get wrapped up in it. And so I think all of us should be very cautious on the kind of instrumental level, what we're participating in, you know, and with hyper capitalism, the Tragic thing is those are the first people to get squeezed out. You have a uh, moral integrity. Well, yeah, we're going to have to let you go. <laughs>
1: because the hierarchical nature of these workplaces and the profit motive is the way that it's laid out. You can have two people underneath you. And one of them tells you, OK, we've got serious problems. We're causing environmental damage through our production chain. Somehow there's human slavery involved in three instances that it would cost us money to get rid of. And they could go through this list of things. And the other person's like, I have nothing to report like that but here's how we can increase profits. It's like in that environment, one of those people sucks to the boss. It's like, man, this guy is just bringing up all these slaves again. We gotta get rid of more (laughs) slaves. Last time we got rid of slaves, it cost us $5,000 a week for the rest of our operations. I can't be like, how many more fucking slaves do we need to get rid of? How much is it gonna cost me? This guy comes by, I have the option to fire him. That's incredible. I can just fire him and then he won't come to my office anymore and he will have to go in the street or something and then it won't work. And then we don't have to, it costs zero dollars. That's an amazing plan. That's like the incentive is set up in the system to push that out without anyone having to plan it that way.
0: Yeah, or even think of it that explicitly, usually. It would just be like, well, they're, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, they're self-filtered out on the way. They, we, no one would ever be in that position in the first place unless it was by some sort of incredible coincidence or nepotism or some sort of yeah random fate of history that you'd have someone who has the ear of someone who is in a position to make decisions like that Because the whole system filters people out from the start. And there's whole ideologies also that encourage that from like the left-wing nexus of thought of like lack of participation within things to a lot of ethical people is treated as something that has ethical good in itself. It just occurs to me that there's sort of an overlap in that not only do they push people with morals out of institutions, people with morals leave unethical institutions because it's far easier and less painful in the long run than trying to change it. In that sense, leaving an unethical institution is sort of like a self immolation of your role within that institution. It's just like a ceasing to exist within Microsoft. So you no longer even have the opportunity to say, Hey, what Microsoft is doing is fucked up ethically. I'm not saying that people should stay in those positions. I just think it's interesting how there's two opposite forces working together to achieve a certain dynamic, which is the polarization, which pushes ethics out of the halls of power. We now go to the politician taking two-meeting sketch.
0: Representative, Representative, are you ready for your first meeting? Uh, Yes, I am. Really busy morning. Two meetings. All right, I'll bring him in. This man is on the brink of homelessness. Ooh, I always hate these ones. Thank you for letting me uh, have this meeting with you.
1: Oh, sir! If you don't mind me saying, you um, got a bit of an odor with you.
0: You know, I haven't had anywhere to shower for the past three months, Ooh. so <laughs> yes. Yeah, Sorry. Ripe.
1: Yeah. Well, I've got some wet wipes in my desk. You know what? I don't mind. What I really wanted to talk to you about was... You don't need to use them now, but I'm just going to slide these wet wipes over.
0: When I was pushed out of my house, they said Mm. that the new development was going to have
1: social housing and that I'd be given first dibs, you know. Oh yeah, I'm extremely proud of the policies that we put forward to ensure that when there's redevelopment happens, a certain percentage is maintained as social and rental housing. So the building's been up for a month now and there's no
0: place for me to live there. And my job says if I don't come in showered tomorrow, I'm going to be fired.
1: I remember what happened with that development. If the developers had made the amount of social housing that was in the bylaws, Mm -hmm. their rate of profit would fall below 17%. So we did everything we could to help them. Is there any way you can get me somewhere to stay tonight? Me and my family, we're desperate. Mm. You're on the the wait list for social housing, right? For months, yeah. And are the shelters all full? All full. (sighs) I'm going to lose my job. Hmm. Sorry, there's
0: absolutely nothing I can do. And I'll just escort you out. Sorry, I'll, I'll spray some Glade around. Thank you, please. <laughs> Sometimes those meetings are really hard. I can see that it takes a toll on you, sir, but Just emotionally, stay strong. Stay strong. Yeah. Hey, Representative, thanks for taking the meeting. I always appreciate your time. Hemsworth, you son of a bitch. How are you doing? <laughs> Mostly pretty good. One little hey, fly in the ointment. Uh-oh, Triple in paradise? What can I do for you? Well, as you know, I just built 17 new luxury condos. Mm-hmm. It's part of the regional development plan. We're super proud. And, you know, part of that was I was supposed to build one more building that was going to be all social housing. Mm-hmm. And I'm just realizing after we finished the 17 luxury condos, out of money really? if I did it I would actually go into the red the shareholders would lose faith we might have to restructure the board might remove whoa, whoa, me as CEO whoa. See, see, there's see, see, like, see, like see, this could domino's
1: Hemsworth please I need you to relax I'm in your corner man let me pull up my spreadsheets Thank you. So, okay, so this is supposed to be 100% social housing. But what if we bump that down to 35% social housing on this one? 35. Uh, no, could, no, say no more. 20. 20. And You're also, an angel. let me just double check in the spreadsheet here. Yes, we can give you a generous subsidy to help offset the cost. Perfect. And do tell the board of directors that. I'm not going to be on city council forever, and I do hope to pivot to the private sector someday. So just pass that word on. Definitely will.
0: And on a personal note, can Mm -hmm. I just, how do you feel about my new cologne? Oh, it smells amazing. You smell really good coming in here. It's a sandalwood and birch sap mix. I bought it from this artisan shop, leased a space in one of the bottom of our luxury condos. Well,
1: hopefully they spray it around that whole neighborhood because... (laughs) Just kidding. Yeah, you know. know.
0: All right. Well, thank you. Love you. Goodbye. Bye. Love you. Take care what another day,
1: another day of being an elected representative.
0: You know, sometimes, sir, I don't know how you do it. They're just all these meetings, all these decisions. it's, uh, it's uh, you inspire me. I don't know any other way to put it. Well, thank you. Is there
1: any secrets, anything you can tell me? I, I, would love to learn. I think today shows something. It's a big lesson. Getting into politics is, is the sad truth is you can't help everyone, hmm. but you can help some people. And it's like that story with the little boy throwing the starfish back in the ocean. His mom says, you're never going to be able to save all the starfish. And he said, I saved that one. I saved that one. In that same sense, I'm able to provide quite a large deal of help to a very small group of people. Chills down my spine, sir.
0: Thank you.
3: Another thought that occurred to me There's a historical continuity to all of this, right? But it gets lost in the noise or in the flow of history in the sense that like, you know, imagine you're just a worker and you go to get a job at Walmart, but then there's a whole history there of Walmart eating up, Mom and pop shops, and then destroying the unions and stuff. So, you know, workers have no rights. And climate change aside, the metaphor of the frog in the boiling pot is apt here because it happens so slowly over time that we don't realize it. And because there's not a universal education system and there's not a functional public discourse, all we have is conspiracy theory and movies and fiction to kind of project what we see on the world. But what I'm trying to reveal is how things are actually working and how it undermines everything. It undermines elites even. And so if we're to, to build, reconstruct a future in the present, it has to completely address all of these things, right? So there is no militarism. There is no dirty hands. There is no rent seeking. There is no covert operations. There is no disinformation. Cause all of those is in some sense, methods of profit extraction, but they don't create any value. And they just take away people's humanity. And so, yeah, I don't know. We need to put out the fire of this global self-immolation, if you will.
0: Yeah, the thing that's like slowly eating away at all of us, wearing us down. Yeah,
1: you can sort of think of these systemic conspiracies as just like little places where our society sets fire to itself for no reason.
0: (laughs) Yeah. All preparing for the burning world where we can retreat to the sky cities and the aqua cities. Or Mars, maybe Elon (laughs) will get us to Mars in time.
1: Fingers Uh, crossed. Yeah, we're just eminatizing the eschaton. It's just an entire process of sparks and fires ebbing and flowing that leads to more and less flames until one time the flames are going to take over and never stop burning. And that's sort of the dream, just by the design of the system. Not that anyone said, hey, let's make this happen. And in fact, hundreds of committees have been struck to stop the burning, you know, like it's just a constant thing. It's like, this is our anti-burning committee. And it's like, your burning was (laughs) up last year since you started the anti-burning committee. (laughs) Well, everyone, I mean, compared to everyone else's increase in burning, ours was actually quite a modest increase in burning. We've actually really frozen burning in certain sectors for one year. That's great compared to all the other anti-burning initiatives by far. Do you even know about anti-burning logistics? Like talk in an anti-burning circle and they'll just laugh at you if you talk about reducing burning. If you advocate for reducing burning, all the experts are going to think that you're a dumb, dumb poo brain because you didn't read all the studies that show it's only possible to slow the burning, never stop it. (laughs) This is what a writer for Jacobin told me. You will get laughed out of any climate conversation if you say that you need to switch to wind, water and solar alone. Oh, right. I'm sorry, all the experts who are ready to laugh at me at any at a moment's notice. But I think maybe we should just stop killing people for no reason, you know? It's like oh, the killing people for no reason experts have determined that's impossible. You sound foolish. No one planned that, but that is inherent to the burning, like the literal burning. I mean, the metaphorical burning and the literal burning is like anti-introspection, fire the guy who knows enough to ask the right questions at the right time. Yeah,
0: I'm just captured by the idea of describing climate change as the collective self-immolation that's like slowly yeah. happening and like we're all watching the flame come towards us on the concrete and we see the gasoline and we see that we're <laughs> sitting here and we're talking about slowing the rate of burning like it's just one toe like yeah. it's really only been one toe that's been burned so far so everyone's saying we're all going to be on fire but it's just a, two, a few. You know, times. I'm
1: an optimist. Even if we all go entirely up in flames and burn for quite some time, someone will come with a fire extinguisher and we might Human ingenuity, where you didn't do it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the subtitle of the self-immolation article, too. It's like how scorched-earth politics inflames extreme protest. It's like the joke about the, uh, you know, firefighters starting the fire so they can put it out so they have a job to do. And in the sense of global warming, not saying anything about other aspects of climate change like ocean acidification and whatnot. But Australia was on fire at the beginning of this year, right That's literally like was the inciting incident of 2020 and there was lots of jokes about it along those lines right So all of these things are connected and again David Buckle's protest was specifically about climate change. So how do we get this discourse and this awareness mainstream to the point where there's not so much bullshit in the mainstream?
1: This stuff about the meta-politics, meta-discourses, and the frameworks for evaluating the world situation and then reacting to it. And I think there's like a sort of a commonality that I find between inventing the future social ecology broadly and metamodernism where you have this sense of create a narrative that helps bring about the future create a narrative that helps bring about the society that we want to have and it's like our responsibility to to craft these narratives as part of the process of transforming society and they approach it in different ways but they also broadly agree on say like rationality ethics and from that social equity ecological stewardship and restoration and so on there's differences amongst those schools of thought, for sure. But there's something that they share that I really, really value that has to do with this sense of like interpreting the world with the intent to create, to take it to action, and to create narratives that help shape the world and, and so on. It's like we have a choice with the Arnav Gupta case, the self-immolation from summer of 2019 that barely made headlines. The Green Party member who was a poet and an artist and who left behind two tweets, one of which was jokingly asking Mackenzie Bezos to meet up with him because they're both single. And the other one, <laughs> the other one is Feel the Burn, which he tweeted shortly before burning himself alive on the White House lawn wearing a USA shirt without leaving a note. So we can take this as a, this is, a, oh, what a weird story. And we're going try to forget it because that's too odd. And there's no sense making to be done here. Or we can try to not just investigate it impartially, which I think is valuable, investigate impar- like we could try to build the narrative as impartially as we can to build the basis of it. This is what novel was like. This is who he was. And this is likely what motivated this. We've got these reasons to think that and so on. And that's good, too. But then there's another level. And this is a level that I think the political tendencies that I mentioned come to sort of an agreement on in their own ways, which is that we also need to choose how we interpret that information and build a narrative consciously for the purposes of listening to Arnav, in a sense.
0: Maybe just not even what he's saying, but what his action tells us about the world.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're listening to the incident of Arnav Gupta's self-immolation. It's not even... There's like a postmodern sort of like the author is dead aspect to maybe the thing that Arnav Gupta was thinking at that time is like, now everyone will know about Pizzagate. You know, like he, he doesn't mention <laughs> it in this poem, but maybe he got into it in the last couple of days before that one pushed him over the edge. We don't know. We could make guesses. But being able to look at all the pieces of the puzzle and then decide to tell the story of Arnav Gupta in the way that represents as accurately as we can how this event fits into society and how it's a catalyst for our change towards the society that we believe in and that we, we believe Arnav Gupta would be happy to be a part of.
3: What I'm getting from that is that we have to make the choice to take responsibility for the event and also calling back to some other things we were saying about the mystery of it and just not knowing we have to be okay with that uncertainty. And for all we know, it went exactly according to his plan, right? To mystify people. Probably didn't plan to leave it up to fate, whether anyone would discuss it in the future, but here we are. So I'm taking responsibility to cover this particular event in one article. It's not the typical thing I do, but it kind of connects to all my other work, which are each one is trying to accomplish something meta, let's say. And so the individual case is interesting, but it's also about what is the big picture that we can zoom out to and how can we learn from it as soon as possible and make that actionable, right? Because there's a sense in which we've exhausted the limits of modernity and post-modernity and all that's left is this whatever we're faced with, this almost indescribable event horizon of human civilization. So we have to make a choice individually and collectively to care enough about the right things to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely.
1: It seems to me like really, really caring about Arnav Gupta could only do good.
3: Yeah, and it, it's a matter of caring about people you don't know. And I don't just mean like this stranger who we now know of, but caring about people you'll never meet. That's fundamentally what it means to live in a society. So we've got to care about Arnav Gupta and everybody else who is in despair and hear them and continue to create the conditions for that political listening so we can actually solve the metacrisis and transform into luxury gay space communism, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Library socialism, more specifically, to the tone of this show, which I love. Luxury gay library socialism. (laughs) Fully (laughs) automated. Right, right. Yeah, don't
0: forget that part. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And uh, if people want to check you out.
3: Yeah, my website is abs tractorg And then that links to the Medium blog. And also I'm active on Twitter at Tato underscore tweets, and I'm happy to meet new people and engage with them because I support the socialist cause, but also this meta discussion is expanding and I want the left to participate, right? Because it doesn't do much in the political center and reactionaries are also a kind of persistent threat to these kinds of developments.
1: Yeah, thanks again for coming on. And and to everyone at home, should they set themselves on fire?
0: <laughs> yeah, but would just good to get that in one more time before we close off. Yes, yes or no, whatever you think.
3: Do not hurt yourself. Try to transmute those feelings into something else as best you can.
0: <laughs> yeah, and find someone to talk to about them. Professional or not, friend, whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And look at the history here and, and recognize how unlikely it is to make an impact.
0: Right. <laughs> Yeah, there's some years where there was hundreds of them, and the thing that they wanted hasn't been changed yet. These Tibetan monks, uh, hundreds of them into that, just, yeah.
1: But yeah, I think we can all make a much, much bigger impact in the world just by participating in the realm of ideas. I think we should take seriously the sort of desperation and the pain that this sort of stuff comes from, but want to emphasize and underline to a degree that we didn't explicitly before, that everyone is capable of participating in politics in a meaningful way, a far, far more meaningful way than that. You just gotta reach out to people and find communities. And I know that's not always easy, but there's so much incredible stuff that can be done over the long term through a developmental iterative trajectory of doing multiple things. And trading that away to do any one big thing, chances are it's gonna not have a good political impact. So just philosophically, I think it's just important because we didn't say explicitly before. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. (laughs) I just realized that I am wrong. She is also wrong. So is he. Oh, we are just seriously wrong. Next time on Seriously Wrong, Sean and Aaron tickle fascists until they become liberals. And it works. Um, so I'd like to tickle you for four and a half minutes to turn you from a fascist to a liberal. Is that okay? Why yes. All right. Let's I consent. Uh, go. I got you.
0: Stop tickling me. I'm oh, a fascist. No. Four and a half
1: minutes. You got to wait. No, <laughs> oh, getting in here deep. <laughs> I'm getting <there> deep. <laughs> oh.
0: Hey, that worked. Four
1: and a half minutes is up. How do you feel?
0: I support immigration. Yes. I support gay rights. Yes. I'm a liberal. Yeah. We should build communism. Let's do it. Absolutely agreed. It works. It really works. It really, really works. It works.